Let's begin. My name is Joshua Gilliland. I'm one of the founding attorneys of The Legal Geeks. We started the blog and podcast in 2012 because we're geek lawyers. We like talking about pop culture and we like the law. So we want everyone to have an opportunity to understand how the law works and we use pop culture to do so. Now, as we dig into Ghostbusters, I'm of that generation where we saw Ghostbusters for my younger brother's birthday in June 84. By September 84, when I turned 10, it was still number one in the theaters. So the movie has staying power, it's fun. And we, we're gonna jump into the first issue of, is it false imprisonment <laughs> to capture a ghost? And Christine, can you help us understand? I'll do my best, Josh. So you can see up here on the screen, we have our New York statutes that talk about when is conduct false imprisonment. When is somebody guilty of false imprisonment? So if you take a look at these statutes, one thing you may notice is that they both apply when a person is restrained. So we need to answer the question, are ghosts persons for purposes of these false imprisonment statutes? And now, depending on what area of law you're talking about, the term person might give different definitions. So our first step in solving this problem is to look at New York's statutory scheme for false imprisonment and see if person is a defined term. So as it turns out, term person is defined uh, for purposes of the entire chapter containing New York's penal law. Um, and if you take a look at this definition, um, you see that human beings are included, corporations, unincorporated associations, partnerships, governments, or a governmental instrumentality. So the first rule of statutory interpretation is that the plain language is clear and unambiguous. There's no need for any further interpretation or inquiry. And under the plain language of this definition, it seems pretty clear that ghosts are not described in this definition. So based on that, I would say that the, the Ghostbusters would not be liable for false imprisonment under New York law. But moving on, let's take this further. Could the ghosts nevertheless seek release under the doctrine of habeas corpus. <laughs> <laughs> habeas corpus is a way of testing the lawfulness of one's imprisonment before a court. And so I have a, a quote up here from a case um, called Non-Human Rights Project being on behalf of Tommy versus Labor. And I have this up here because this case addressed the question of personhood under somewhat analogous circumstances. So this uh, organization that is representative um, brought suit on behalf of two chimpanzees, Tommy people, who were being kept in cages by their respective mothers. They've also done other suits on um, seeking similar relief for elephants, just to give you some of the context of how this organization does their work. And um, the question before the court was whether Tommy and people were persons for purposes of their interest in personal autonomy and freedom from unlawful detention. And in this case, the chimpanzees did not prevail, and the state's highest court denied them leave to appeal. This quote is actually from a, a judge that wrote a concurrence. So he concurred in the denial of leave to appeal, but he still wrote to express his thoughts about the profound nature of the question that he was facing. Um, and so he, he really viewed it as a deep ethical and policy dilemma that deserved 
deserved more attention than just you know some order saying you, you don't have food to appeal. Um, he says the better approach, in his view, is not to ask whether the chimpanzee fit the definition of a person or whether they have the same rights and duties as a human, but instead whether they have the right to liberty protected by habeas corpus. So you can kind of see the internal struggle going on in this quote right here. Um, and ultimately, he concludes, while it may be arguable that a chimpanzee is not a person, it's definitely not nearly a thing. Um, so he's really kind of going back and forth here. Um, and I wanted to include this because I thought it, it is a nice tie-in to some of the other conversations we've had on other panels here at ComCon about the nature of personhood, um, in particular thinking of the Star Trek Next Generation episode, Measure of a Man, where they wrestle with this idea of whether data can choose whether or not to participate in mathematics in this experiment. And what this judge ended up writing sounds kind of similar to Zola Lodois' conclusion in Measure of a Man. Data is a machine, but that doesn't necessarily produce the property of Starfleet. He does get to choose. And here you've got the ghosts and ghostbusters, they have personalities. Sometimes it relates back to a person um, that lived as a human in a past life, and sometimes not. You know, others are gods, some are slimers, some are metal munchers, but they have consciousness and they have volition, and they love a hotel buffet as much as the next person. <laughs> so if you're asking me, I think that the ghosts may avail themselves Excellent. Well, let's look at the liability for Dr. Vinkman's conduct. So, and I thought it was important, important to take this since I'm the male on the panel. Do not use your position of authority to hit on co-eds. Do not go to a person's place of work. Do not take a narcotic on a date that can sedate someone. And most importantly of all, don't be a creep. All bad has not aged well, and the fact that we thought this was funny in 1984 is really disturbing. So, just say no. But let's talk about a 19% interest rate on a loan. That's a third mortgage, Christine. Is that okay? Yes. <laughs> well, so a third mortgage means that there's already two other home loans out against Ray's house. So the third one is gonna be subordinate to those existing liens, which means the lender is taking on a lot more risk of non-payment if hypothetically the Ghostbusters business is a bust. And therefore the interest rate is higher. Usury laws focus on protecting persons who are in weaker bargaining positions against being taken advantage of by people who are in stronger bargaining positions. And it's common to uh, law up here sets a maximum rate of interest for certain types of loans. Although rate is in the weaker bargaining position, and 19% is very unfavorable, um, unfortunately, he does not enjoy the protection of New York's usury laws. There's a case that I found saying the usury laws don't apply to joint mortgages, which is what rate has. So in summary, the answer is no. Also, do not drink brandy and then let family so let's talk about the search uh, capability of the EPA, the real villain of the first movie. So, Josh, this is a thorny question. I think the preliminary question is, how, what is, how is the EPA's authority even implicated here? Initially, Peck says, we want to assess any possible environmental impact from the operation. He's interested in the presence of 
not just possibly hazardous chemical waste uh, in your basement. So clearly the investigation is in its early stages because the nature of the allegedly hazardous waste is unspecified. Um, it's not clear that this proposed inspection is tied to a type of waste that's even within the scope of the EPA's regulatory authority. And in terms of the inspection, Peck seems laser focused on the containment system, but he seems to be ignorant of the fact that each of the Ghostbusters is wearing an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on his back. <laughs> <laughs> so according to the EPA's website, particle accelerators can produce radioactive waste. It's not clear that the laser containment bridge can do the same. But even if it does, you still have to look very carefully at which agency has authority to regulate this type of waste. If it's radioactive material, it's, it's possible that it may not be the EPA, it could be another agency like the Department of Energy or the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, so the EPA's authority spans a, a patchwork of different statutes which are beyond the scope of this presentation to discuss. Um, and he doesn't seem to suspect radioactive waste anyways, which begs the question, aside from the ghosts that he doesn't believe in, what is the waste? I raise this jurisdictional question because it kind of overlaps with the issue of, of probable cause, whether he has probable cause to get a warrant. So if there's no facts to support a belief that there's any activity within the EPA's regulatory purview occurring, there may not be facts to support a reasonable belief that there's any violation of the environmental law occurring. This is just a big fishing expedition. So on to the warrant. So Peck seeks consent to search, he doesn't get it. And he comes back with an order that has warrant-like qualities. So there's a federal entry and inspection order. There's some reference to seizure of premises and chattels. So, okay, it sounds a little bit like a warrant. Um, and we have a we have a quote from a case up here on this on the screen. This this case talked about how warrants are, are normally understood. And they said, well, they're ex parte orders that authorize government agents to enter private property forcibly if necessary, and card off papers or property that is specified in the warrant. Um, so it's a little unclear whether there's an actual criminal warrant or whether this is an administrative warrant. Administrative warrants are often used to inspect for things like safety hazards or regulatory compliance. It's not clear what comes come, uh, back uh, exactly. Um, it's probably administrative. Um, and if that's the case, then Peck doesn't really have to meet such a high probable cause standard um, that would like, maybe be required for a criminal uh, search warrant. So it's enough that there's either specific evidence of an existing violation, and here there's not really, um, or that the search is part of a general, neutral, and administrative plan, which is also hard to justify because there are no similar businesses at the time. <laughs> So it's hard to conceive of how this could be a general, neutral, administrative plan to search businesses in a particular industry, because there's only one. Um, so now normally, if the warrant is unlawful in some way, the remedy would be a motion to quash or suppress. Doesn't really help the Ghostbusters with the immediate threat. The disaster of biblical proportions is imminent. The cats and dogs are about to start living together now. <laughs> and so, Although as an attorney, I'm not sure I can ethically advise them to do this, the Ghostbusters' best option under the circumstances may simply be to have locked the basement door, just deny access. Now, I'm not saying there's no risk associated with this. They can, they can come back with a ramp. Um, they may well be held in contempt of court. That's what the case says, including up there. 
is about. They actually reference the Ghostbusters in Phoenix case, which is kind of funny. Surprising when you search how often Ghostbusters shows up in legal opinions. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but I think at least they want to buy themselves some time to figure out some kind of backup plan. Maybe they can um, somehow support the containment system or get the ghosts into a different system. Well, let's talk about who's liable for all the damage that happens after the containment grid is shut down and we have a giant explosion of supernatural energy. So, was the electrician negligent for shutting down the system? Claudia? So, yeah, I'm going to take a stab at this So for negligence, there's four main elements that we have to meet. We have our duty, we have our breach, we have our causation, and we have our damages. For duty, we basically have to see, you know, just a reasonable, prudent person, you know, that person that we love to mention all the time as lawyers, um, owe a duty of care to the person within their area or um, vicinity that they are serving. Um, that's often established either by relationships, it can be like here, like through the work. So we're gonna assume here that Con Edison is a private group, kind of like SDG&E here, who's a private company, but they're serving um, the public and the general good. So we're gonna say that they do have a duty to protect the general public and make sure that everyone is safe. So then we go into breach, which is our main issue here. We wanna see if the electrician fell below that standard of care that they actually owed to the, the city to make sure that everybody was safe. Um, and, I'll, I'll, and third, we want to see if there's causation. So causation is kind of broken up into uh, injury and fact, and then proximate cause. So we want to see whether those two factors are met. Because damages are obviously kind of obvious. You guys saw the movie. Um, <laughs> much argument there. We'll go ahead. So for breach, um, the argument that I would make is like my co-counsel here was saying um, the police officer or the electrician didn't actually check the warrant that the that the police officer tried to bring. We don't know if it was a valid warrant. He didn't even really you know, inspect it. He just kind of went in and kind of took his word for it. Um, where they're going to have their most argument is in causation. They're going to say, okay, I was like following this order, I allowed this to happen, um, and maybe there was like some kind of superseding fact um, where, you know, somebody, nobody actually had to stop, but that's kind of not the case. Um, he very well should have read that warrant, and he did it, and um, we all know what happened there. So I'm going to go ahead and make an argument that they were negligent, and that they reached their duty to Unfortunately, the negligence standard is much um, harder to to actually meet. I just saw on this slide we have negligence per se, which is if it was like written in statute and a protocol somewhere that if they would have um, if they would have violated it there, they would have been able to prove like a breach and duty much much more simply there. And then we have strict liability, which there's hardly ever any defenses for, um, but. We, we can't make that argument here. So if we're going towards negligence, I'm going to make the argument that they can, but they do have some arguments.
they are going to be able to fire back at us. So we always work in the great, right? So Judge Beckerman, are the Ghostbusters negligent for the explosion? Thank you, Josh. For those of you who have not seen the movie since 1984, let me give you a brief pause for a plot summary. So the EPA Inspector Peck goes to shut down the Ghostbusters headquarters. He orders the electrician to actually pull the plug. The electrician does. The headquarters blow up. The containment unit blows up. And the ghost waste goes all over the city. And there's a big explosion. So the question is, if you're the neighbor whose windows are blown out, or if you are somebody who had to deal with um, escaped ghost matter, who do you want to sue, right? You want someone to pay for your damages. Can you sue the Ghostbusters? Is it their fault that this happened? Should they pay for the damage? Uh, there's four theories you might bring if you're a plaintiff and you want to sue the Ghostbusters in court. One is negligence, which you just heard about um, from our most recent law graduate. She did a great job of laying out the elements of negligence. One of the elements is causation. So the question is what the Ghostbusters did to cause the damage, and as you know from the movie, everything was working pretty well until Inspector Peck showed up. He's the one who really caused this damage to happen. So I would argue Ghostbusters did not cause the damage. If you're the plaintiff, you have a causation problem. As for negligence, I would say Ghostbusters, not liable. But there's this other uh, principle called negligence per se. Uh, Inspector Peck came in and said, Ghostbusters, you are violating the Environmental Protection Act. You are violating an environmental statute. If you are, in fact, violating a statute or a regulation, then the law says you have breached your duty of care as a matter of law. It doesn't matter if you screwed up. You're, you're breaking the law, and therefore you breached your duty. So any damages that came out of the explosion, even if the Ghostbusters didn't cause the explosion, they're probably still liable under negligence per se. There's also a theory in tort law called strict liability. If you are doing something that is an abnormally dangerous activity, like busting ghosts. You may be strictly liable for any damage that comes out of your activity, and that's a common uh, principle in the law. So if a court were to find that ghost busting is um, abnormally dangerous, they're probably liable for anything that was, uh, any damage that was caused, even if they were not negligent. And finally, they could be found liable for violating our national uh, environmental laws, including CERCLA, which is also known as Superfund, that regulates um, uh, hazardous substances. So if you're a person or a business who's responsible for the presence of hazardous substances, and those are released and they cause damage, you are liable for all the damages that come out of that. Um, however, I did check even as late as this morning, and as of right now, ghost vapor and slime is not listed on the CERCLA list of hazardous substances. So I think the Ghostbusters get a pass this time. Excellent. Well, let's talk about the United States government acting through its agent at the EPA. Christine, any liability there? Well, in theory, Josh, there could be. Um, there is a statute called the Federal Tort Claims Act that authorizes plaintiffs to obtain compensation from the United States for torts of federal government employees, such as Mr. Peck. And the FTCA does that by effecting a limited waiver of the sovereign immunity if the government does not waive its immunity, it cannot be sued in court with lack jurisdiction. The employee himself, Mr. Peck, still gets immunity. Basically what happens is the United States gets substituted in as a defendant and stands in the shoes of the employee who's alleged to have committed misconduct. Um, and as far as the substantive claims, those get drawn from state law. So in that case, it would be 
Um, here it's hard to think of a theory that isn't based in some kind of language or other malfeasance that's associated with the investigation or the search. Um, and so that may cause us some problems down the line. The other thing that I think has problems is there's a lot of procedural hurdles with this statute. So your claim is barred unless you, you present it to the government agencies for like, like giving them a present. You have to give them the opportunity to consider your claim and you have to do it within a certain time limit. Um, and then once they probably reject it, then you have to initiate an action within a certain time after that. And if you don't do those things, um, you can be uh, finding yourself out of court. Um, the other big problem is that there are a lot of exceptions to the waiver of sovereign immunity. And the biggest exception, one of the most common exceptions, is the discretionary function exception. Um, and that comes into play when the conduct is a matter of judgment or choice for the employee. Um, and it requires exercise of judgment based on considerations of public policy. So if there were some statute or regulation that dictated to Mr. Peck how he must conduct his investigation, then maybe he wouldn't be entitled to um, claim this protection, but there probably isn't that, so he probably is. Um, and does it involve public policy? Well, yeah, arguably hazardous waste implicates public policy. Um, unfortunately for the, the public who may have been injured um, by this explosion, um, or those mortgage lenders who may have lost their collateral, um, I did find a case where the FTCA claimed for tortious investigation based on an investigation laid by the EPA was held to fall within this discretionary function exception. So this is probably not the best path for redress, but it does exist out there in the and now you know about it. Well, let's talk about New York City and yeah, so on the basis of time, since we have a little bit more material, yes, no, and why? Let's go yes, because he could be a superseding factor when we talked about like the causation element. Um, he stopped uh, Berkman from trying to persuade the electrician from shutting down the computer. So, yes. Okay. Well, let's talk about can the estate of Evo Shandor be sued for the 1984 Gozer incident at 550 Central Park West? There are no cases where estates get sued for a mass tort event. There are cases where an estate, somebody dies, sues because that person died in a mass tort event. However, the law is not designed for this. So suing the property owner uh, and maybe trying to treat it as a toxic tort case, because if you've spilled chemicals into the ground, those cases can go back for 70 years and bring in insurance carriers for all of those 70 years. It's a stretch to argue a supernatural factor, but this was intentionally done in order to build a conduit to bring Gozer into New York to unleash hell. So, not easy, could be barred, but I'd take a swing at it. Now, Claudia, Ray thinks about the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man and inadvertently chooses the form of the destroyer. Is he financially liable for that? We can have prosecuted guilty Well, let's talk about, does the law recognize the existence of ghosts? So this line came from the Ghostbusters 2 movie. This is something that the judge says as the Ghostbusters are about to go on trial. 
contract for sale based on the alleged failure to disclose the seller's belief that the house was haunted. Um, and at the time, New York law imposed no duty on the vendor to disclose the information concerning the premises, unless there was a confidential or fiduciary relationship, some kind of special relationship between the parties. But here, the buyer was not local and could not have readily learned about the haunting. Um, now, to be fair, this case could be viewed as one about impairment of property value. The buyer is essentially saying, I would have paid less if I had known about this property's reputation for being haunted. But even so, the majority took the seller's statements to the media against the seller. The seller had um, reported the presence of ghosts in a national publication, the Reader's Digest, and also in the local press. And as a result, the court said, quote, defendant is a stop to deny their existence. And as a matter of law, the house is haunted. Question for the audience. How many of you have lived in a haunted house? Okay, there are a few of us. So let's talk about the trial in Ghostbusters 2 because, well, come on, this was written for us. So they're charged with violating a restraining order, willful destruction of public property, fraud, and malicious mischief. So we see Lewis their accountant, now a lawyer, give an opening statement. I coached high school mock trial for five years. These are the basic things that you want in an opening statement. You're telling a story. You want to provide an outline to the jury and judge what's happening. You want to get the judge's attention. You want to show your position. And you want to create a presumption with the fact finder that your guy is in the right. You want to be positive, strong, practice. So, Judge Beckerman, how would you rate Lewis Tully's opening statement? How many of you have seen Ghostbusters 2? Raise your hand. Okay. Is there anybody who wants to summarize the opening statements? If anyone recited? <laughs> All right, it's pretty short. That's why I asked. For those of you who have not seen the movie, this is what. Lewis, Lewis Tully um, says to the judge, so this is, his three clients are on trial in a criminal case. They are going to prison if he drops the ball, right? So there's a lot at stake. Lewis Tully walks up to the bench and says, your honor, he turns around and says, ladies and gentlemen of the audience, I don't think it's fair to call my clients frauds, sure. The blackout was a big problem for everybody, okay? I was trapped in an elevator for two hours and I had to make it the whole time. But I don't blame them, because one time I turned into a dog and they helped me. <laughs> Thank you. That was the opening statement. Uh, while his three clients are sitting there, um, you know, sort of horrified. So he sits down and Egon Spangler says, very good, Lewis, short but pointless. Which is a fair critique. It was short, it was pointless. But to be fair, we have an outstanding high school mock trial coach here who has laid out what is, makes a good opening statement. And Lewis had some of the high points. He, told, he had a theme, my clients are not frauds. He told a story about turning into a dog. It was sincere. It clearly caught the judge's attention. <laughs> uh, the vocabulary was simple, the sentence structure was clear. So he did uh, some of the things you're supposed to do in an opening statement. But um, as a trial judge, I see a lot of opening statements, and I can report to you that Lewis Tully's opening statement is the worst I've ever seen. 
So, and many great lawyers have gone to night school. Christine, let's talk about leading the witness or leading the lawyer. <laughs> yes, it's unclear as between uh, uh, Lewis and Megan who's leading who. Um, so we have a, a pretty old case up here that defines what is a leading question. Um, and it's a question to a witness's leading when it puts into the witness's mouth words to be echoed back or it plainly suggests the answer which the party wishes to get from him. Um, and so when can you lead? Um, you can lead on cross-examination. If you're questioning the other side of the witnesses and they're the ones that are adverse to you, you can lead. Um, you cannot lead um, on direct or redirect your own witnesses. Um, and here, this is a, Lewis questioning his own client. So no, he absolutely cannot lead, and, and certainly Benjamin cannot lead him. And all that's happening is Benjamin is feeding Lewis lines that are more in the nature of argument to the jury. Well, hilarious. Um, this doesn't really help, but the reason why is that the purpose of a direct examination is to admit evidence of facts that are within that witness's personal knowledge. There's no point in maintaining Lewis lines because the attorney's statements during an examination are not evidence. So Lewis isn't asking Benjamin any questions. Benjamin's just up there giving a speech. All that's happening is that the client, Benjamin, is on the stand waving his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination with no safeguards from his attorney whatsoever. Um, it's an unmitigated disaster. Yep. Thank you, we've helped them enough. So let's talk about the Scolari brothers kidnapping the DA and letting all chaos out in the courtroom. And Judge Beckerman, is that cause to dismiss the criminal charges against the Ghostbusters? So as you'll recall, it seems like everyone here has seen Ghostbusters too, which is awesome. This is exactly the audience that we would have hoped for. Um, but at, toward the end of the criminal trial, the Scolari brother ghosts come in, and Judge Wexler says, it's the Scolari brothers, I sent them to the chair. And they disrupt the trial, they kidnap the DA. And the question is, is a ghost appearing in the middle of your trial enough for a mistrial? I mean, Christine, have you ever had that happen in the middle of the trial? Can't say that? All right, Josh? No. Uh, okay. No. So, um, the problem is here, it might have been enough for a mistrial if it came in mid-trial. So, anything that happens in a trial that would um, lead to a belief that you can't have an impartial trial, um, that would cause a mistrial. Um, the problem here is that the Scolari brothers came in after uh, Judge Wexler already found the Ghostbusters guilty and sentenced them to 18 months at Riders Island. So, it was probably too late for a mistrial. Um, as a footnote, another issue in the trial was the restraining order against the Ghostbusters, which basically was a court order saying you can no longer do any Ghostbusting. Um, the appearance of ghosts would actually have an impact on that because a restraining order is something that the court will order um, with a four-part test. Um, is the plaintiff going to win? Is there irreparable harm if the plaintiff does not get a restraining order? What's the balance of the equities? Um, and what's in the public interest? That's the test for a restraining order. So apparently somebody convinced the judge that the balancing test um, said there should be no more ghostbusting. So there was a restraining order in place, um, but once the ghosts appear, that changes the calculus, right? Now it's actually in the public interest to bust ghosts, and so the judge should have, and eventually did in the movie, rescind the restraining order. So the Scolari brothers actually did a good thing for the ghostbusters. So, let's talk about, was Lewis Tully competent to represent the Ghostbusters? And I'm going to help set this up for Claudia. 
Now the duty of competency means you know what you're doing. And if you don't know what you're doing, you're supposed to ask for help. Now, there can be a situation where you're in an emergency, family member gets into trouble, and they call your brother who focuses on electronic discovery and ask specific questions. In that situation, if it's an emergency, giving limited advice is completely okay. However, you need to know when to tag out. I would never want to work on a triple homicide. I don't do that. So, Claudia, was Lewis competent to take that trial? According to the rules of professional conduct, literally rule number one, no. He did not have the legal skills, the knowledge, or the ability to represent these three men for a very heinous crime. So, let's talk about taking the Statue of Liberty for a walk in order to save the day. <laughs> Can you walk us through, uh, Claudia, if the necessity defense would allow them to take a national monument for a walk? Yeah, so, like uh, you said, the necessity defense is an affirmative defense to a crime. Um, and so, Ghostbusters would have to show that the harm was necessary as an emergency measure to avoid an imminent public or private uh, injury, which is about to occur by reason that in a situation that they did not create, uh, and the desirability and urgency of avoiding such injury clearly outweighs the desirability of avoiding the injury sought to be prevented by the statute defining the offense in issue. So, if we take a look at this case law that we just read, um, they might be able to use it. Um, it depends. Is the answer. I would take that case. I would argue yes. But let's talk about Ghostbusters 2016 where, you know, one of the lead characters inadvertently kills Bill Murray's character. Christine, that, is that cool? Could she get away without getting prosecuted? <laughs> so I, I don't think that this is just about what is the mental state required to support a conviction for some type of manslaughter. There's some type of manslaughter going on here. I think, I think we're choosing between recklessness which is the mens rea necessary to support second-degree manslaughter versus criminal negligent homicide. So you're, the defendant is reckless if the defendant is aware of and consciously disregards a substantial and unjustifiable risk that death will result. And the risk must be of such a nature and degree that, the, it con that disregarding the risk constitutes a gross deviation from the standard of care that a reasonable person Whereas criminally negative homicide um, concerns a situation where the defendant just fails to perceive a substantial and unjustified risk, and you still also need to go to deviation from the standard. And so here you've got Martin, the famed scientist and paranormal debunker, um, who challenges the women in Ghostbusters claiming that they caught a ghost. He does egg them on, and he says, I would love to see that, I really would. Um, but when Aaron impulsively steps on the beliefs, she's not doing that. She has knowledge about this particular ghost because she just helped capture it. And the ghost did nearly the same thing to the singer of the metal band um, in the scenes before. Picked him up and threw him into what looks like a, a stack of amplifiers. So I don't know that this rises to the level of recklessness. It may not be fair to charge him with knowledge 
potential and unjustifiable risk of death, but I think it is more than fair to say that she failed to perceive a substantial and unjustifiable risk. The window is right there. And is it a gross deviation? Yes, no one else thinks this is a good idea. Abby tries to talk her out of it. Holtzman gets the, the proton pack to make it lose the capture. So I think Aaron has something to worry about here. So let's high level afterlife on who's going to jail and Judge Beckerman lightning round and we're trying not to blow any big spoilers. Yeah, I'll be careful since some of you haven't seen the movie. Go to the movie this weekend or maybe I guess next weekend if you haven't seen it already, it's so good. Um, so I'll be a little bit vague, but in one scene, um, Trevor, who's Egon Spengler's grandson, uh, uh, takes a joyride in the Ecto-1 and he's driving through the fields on his family farm before he gets to the highway. So the question is, um, can you drive without a driver's license if you're not on a public street? And some of you may want to know this if you've trained your teenagers to drive in, say, a parking lot, um, as I have. Um, where, where do you need a driver's license to drive? And under most states' laws, um, you do need a driver's license if you're on a, quote, public highway, which is defined as most streets and, unfortunately, most parking lots uh, that the public can access. So when Trevor is driving through the field, he's likely not breaking any laws because he doesn't need a driver's license to drive across his family farm. When he hits the public highway, he's likely breaking the law, likely a traffic violation, he's a minor, likely not going to jail. But then he also um, does some reckless driving through town. That's also against the law, but he may have a necessity defense. If you are doing something that violates the law, but it's an emergency, and whatever harm you're causing is not as much harm as would be caused if you weren't doing the uh, conduct, uh, then you have a necessity defense. So he might be off the hook for that. Um, eventually, he and the other protagonists were arrested and charged with um, destruction of property. The police seized the uh, Ghostbuster mobile and the proton pack. And they can probably do that if it's evidence of a crime. They can probably even seize it and forfeit it because it was um, property that was used to commit the crime. Uh, but Phoebe, who is Egon Spangler's granddaughter, um, is upset about this. It doesn't sit well with her. So she um, brandishes a proton cap wand at the police officer. Is that a good idea? No, it's a terrible idea. You don't point a weapon at a police officer, it turns out. It's against the law. Um, brandishing a weapon is against the law. The law is actually an even stiffer penalty if you brandish a weapon in front of a law enforcement officer. But the question you should be asking defense lawyers, as well as a proton pack, a weapon under the law. You know, usually when you think of weapon, you think of guns and knives. Um, but it is, at least under California law, which defines a weapon to include any object, instrument, or weapon that is inherently deadly or dangerous, or, and this is the, the clause that matters here, one that is used in such a way that is capable of causing and likely to cause death or great bodily injury. There is a case where a 90 high top is, um, a court holds that that is a dangerous weapon because it was used in a dangerous way. So proton pack likely is a weapon that you should not brandish in front of a police officer. And, and with that, since we have 10 minutes left, if there's, or those with questions start lining up now, because we're gonna hit the lightning round. Awesome. Um, so just in summary, there, there may have been other laws that were broken in the afterlife movie. Um, there's a lot of property that's destroyed because of the actions our protagonists take. Um, can it be held criminally liable for that? Probably not. Destruction of property and vandalism laws really would require an intent to, the, to damage property. They didn't intend to do it. It was a byproduct of their ghost busting. So they're probably off. 
So with that, we have an issue of inheritance and debt because the house is inherited. If somebody dies with excessive debt, you can't probate a dead person. You have to be alive to go through bankruptcy. So you go to probate, not bankruptcy. So if somebody dies with judgments, all the judgments get settled in probate. So that's the quick way of answering that. We have questions, and Judge Beckerman, if you want to cover the last two points, we can start answering questions. Sure, okay, so as a postscript, I thought you should know that even though we're talking about cases that might come up in court because of the Ghostbusters, there have actually been two cases that came up that were quite interesting that because of the Ghostbusters. One, when Huey Lewis heard the Ghostbusters theme song, he thought, huh, that sounds familiar. That sounds like my hit song, I Want a New Drug. So he sued Ray Parker Jr. for clearly ripping off the song. Am I wrong? You guys should listen to both songs on your way home, okay? Um, they settled out of court in 1985 pursuant to a confidentiality agreement where neither of them are allowed to talk about the settlement. But in 2001, Huey Lewis went on VH1 Behind the Music and talked about the settlement. Um, so Ray Parker Jr. sued him right back, and even the score, so to speak. Um, then, in 1984, Harvey uh, Cartoons sued Columbia Pictures, saying that the Ghostbusters ghost was a ripoff of Fats of the Ghost, who's part of the ghostly trio who appeared in the uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost comics. And the judge actually uh, said Columbia Pictures wins because that picture of Fats of the Ghost was out in the public domain, so there's no copyright infringement. But the Ghostbusters are actually, in real cases, and actually cited by judges quite a bit in other cases. So with that, let's answer some questions. Yes, sir. I know you just touched on the damages done by their program back one, but would a liability waiver be enough to avoid any damages? Because those things are very powerful and they cause a lot of damage. And the Ghostbusters should know they might miss and they might just score a huge line of fire. So the, we, that almost ended up as a topic. It's gonna end up as a blog post because when you go to the first case and we have, let's split up, yeah, we could do more damage that way. They didn't know initially and they should have had a waiver that also talked about what the rates were for performing their services. So a waiver can help, but like if you call an exterminator, they don't normally blow out a wall. So they would really need to be carry a lot of insurance. So Thank you. You're welcome. Yes, sir. All right. So in the apartment complex that you or someone on top of, do you think the apartment, the people who own the apartment from there, would have a legal case against the owner of the building if the owner was, uh, let's say, a descendant of the Shandor of the guy? Shandor, yeah. Yes, or if they do in any way I would treat it like a construction defect case. And like if you use material that causes windows to leak and, and problems, I would go after it as a construction defect case because of the metal that they used uh, was a conductor for the supernatural activity. So I would approach it that way and say it was a hidden defect to get around the statute of limitations for the um, uh, close of escrow date for the building being completed. So, six minutes. Uh, so you've all been talking about how these human characters are liable for the uh, events that transpire in the movies, but I was just wondering if it's 
criminally accountable for the uh, misfortune that occurred. So uh, Christine loves highlighting South Park with what's the phrase? So can you do a suance? We're not designed for that. <laughs> so you'd want to go after like a, an entity that's still in existence, like a business or an estate or a trust to sue them because they have assets. So you can try getting money. Now, a restraining order against a ghost, that's not going to work because it would require them to respect the law, so they would need to be caught. All right, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, um, that's a heavily controlled substance for a reason. We don't want neighborhoods blowing up. We don't want lymphoma. Uh, all those things are bad. Uh, Judge Beckerman, you want to tag in with that? Sure. Again, there might be like some sort of a necessity offense where it's like, look, this is dangerous, but like you're fighting ghosts, you're saving the world, so maybe that's okay from a criminal perspective. And to draw in a, a COVID example, if the Ghostbusters had good lobbyists in DC, they would pass a law that says, because this Ghostbusting is so important, and you can't sue the Ghostbusters because we need them. And it's the same thing as a law that was passed for vaccine developers. So you can't sue, if you get it sick from the vaccine or the vaccine doesn't work, you can't sue those companies because Congress says you can't. So there could be a law like that for Ghostbusters where it's like, look, we know this is dangerous, it might go wrong, but you cannot sue them because we really need them, kind of like vaccines. is a crime so and there might be ex there are exceptions for like tow trucks they also weren't using the red and blue and they weren't using the type that ambulances or fire have but it still gives that effect so it's, it's highly problematic yes sir what if the ghostbusters uh, were highly captured the ghosts playing baseball and kind of costume school Reese's peanut butter of chocolate and peanut butter coming together, that's, that's like tuna fish and chocolate. It's just, it shouldn't exist in nature. Um, that would be highly problematic for them to trespass and go capture a ghost. Yes, sir. Okay, so say I live in a home and then I die. And then as I go on into the afterlife, someone else buys my home and then I reappear as a ghost in that home. Can the new homeowner sue me for rent? <laughs> wow, I think there's a trespass issue. Uh, anyone want to tag in on that? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
goes back to your haunted your haunted house example. Yeah. Yeah, you know, rent. I yeah I. I'm gonna say no. Instinctively <laughs> say no. Um, yeah. We have one minute, so sir, hit us, and we'll uh, go fast. I'm kind of similar to his, but if it goes to the the property, and could the ghost be could the ghost be charged with trespassing if it's like say the librarian, where it's clearly a more civilized ghost that doesn't immediately attack? So the answer is a. Uh, okay, they're not people. So because they're dead, and the law doesn't make. Uh, define them as people. So we get into the issue of is it a hazard? Is it an infestation? So it could be approached that way because do you want ghosts to have rights similar to people? But and it would be harder to keep them in a jail cell, so yeah. 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 the property questions are difficult because of the <laughs> fluctuations in the physical space that the ghosts occupy. So sometimes there may be an augmentation and sometimes there may be another reason. The containment system itself has some unique features that basically kind of compress the ghosts. So, um, so, so property problems, I think, are, are tricky. Yeah. That said, we'll be back tomorrow at 1 o'clock for our Lawyer's Holiday Special. So thank you all for attending. <laughs> and join us tomorrow to find out if Frosty the Snowman is a person.